0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Samite Mulando is an internationally acclaimed musician and humanitarian. He's a native of Uganda and the star of a biographical one man play called Resilience. The world premiere of resilience is tonight at University of St. Joseph's Autorino Center in West Hartford, Connecticut. Samite joins me now in studio. Samite, welcome to where we live. Thank you. I understand that you've been playing the flute for many years. What brought you to that instrument?
1: Well, my grandfather used to play the wooden flute, and so did my uncle. So from a very early age, I wanted to be just like them.
0: And did you, they teach you?
1: My uh, uncle did first, and then my grandfather took it, took it on. And, um, and then later on, I was introduced to the silver flute at the high, when I went to high school.
0: How old were you when you picked up the wooden flute?
1: Uh, I think I started trying to play it when I was about six. And then later on, when I was 12, that's when I picked up the silver flute. And I loved the sound of the birds, so it was just one way to copy the birds.
0: That's interesting. I I was uh, listening to a talk that you did, a TED Talk, uh, a few years ago, and you were talking a lot about your grandfather's influence on your life. So He was the one that helped introduce you to the wooden flute, but Mm -hmm. he also talked about the importance of, of the nature around you. Can you tell us about some of the stories he told you?
1: What he really wanted me to always remember that material things were meaningless. He wanted me to be more aware of the beauty of the nature around me, the birds. He would make me clean, even this, you know, uh, where the leaves are falling would clean those so that I was paying attention to what was around me. So I think it's just the respect for nature and the the trees and things Mm -hmm. like that. And he'd also show me how to, you know, to work with monkeys when they would come to eat my grandmother's sweet potatoes
0: mm. yeah. what were the first songs that you played as a child
1: i think i just remember it sounds like
0: para pa pa
1: pa 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 para pa pa something about dodo which is uh, green it's like spinach so like we are trying to they're trying to convince us to eat spinach so they make you know we hated it so, so it's like you sing it in a song and it becomes something that you eat to become strong
0: well, I don't want to tease our listeners uh, and without hearing you play. Do you mind playing a little from your flute?
1: Definitely. I loved I would love to do that.
2: Mm-hmm. Magnolimu bakawa moutons. <tries> Only name, it is Mudjokola. Only name, it is Mudjoku Kilisa. Kalito, Tia. Only Rodia. Magnolimu Only name, it is Mudjokola. Only name, it is Mudjoku Kilisa. Kalito. We wrote,
0: yeah, mubaka wa
2: mutunzi. Oni ne mirimu jokola, oni ne mirimu jokutukiriza. Kalitutia, we wrote, yeah, mubaka wa mutunzi. Oni ne jokola, oni ne mirimu jokutukiriza. Kale to tia Uriro tia Manyoli mvaka wa mutonzi Olinemi mu jokola Olinemi mu jokutukiriza kirisa. to tia Uriro tia Manyoli mvaka wa mutonzi Olinemi mu jokola O ine mi ni muzoko tu kirisa kalito tia uriro tia mnyoni mubaka wamutuzi
0: O That's Samite, a world-renowned musician, originally from Uganda, in our studio today here on Where We Live. As we learn more about his life, Samite, tell our listeners who are hearing you, but they can't see you, exactly (laughs) how you were able. Mm -hmm. We could hear you playing the flute, Mm -hmm. and then we could hear you're using a looper pedal. So describe how you're you're making that sound.
1: So basically, uh, I record myself many times over, um, which is just really... A beautiful thing because you can practice as many times as you want until morning without having to uh, ask musicians to stay up the whole night. So the lupa, I love the lupa because it re- gives me an opportunity to have many samites singing and so just layering layers and layers, um, you know, of my voice. <laughs> in my machine.
0: And describe your flute. It, it appears longer than a flute that, <laughs> when I was back in band years ago, uh, playing the saxophone. <laughs> yeah, uh, the flutes oh, that did. I, yeah, the flutes That's that cool. I would see in my orchestra uh, look different than the one you're playing.
1: This is a big alto flute, and usually people use the little U to make it shorter. But I prefer to have it really long. Yeah.
0: Tell us about the song that you were singing. What were you saying?
1: The song is actually on my new CD coming out in June. It's called resilience um the song is also the city is called resilience the song is called resilience and the play is called resilience so um, i'm singing in a language called luganda and i'm saying that whenever you are afraid remember that you are a messenger from the creator you know when things go down you're scared how am i going to accomplish this i think if you're confident you realize that there's a reason why you're here there's a purpose even though nobody knows what our purpose is
0: I wanted to learn more about your life in Uganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about your childhood and about the country that you remember.
1: The country I remember, there are two parts of it. The first part of it was beautiful, the sound of birds, you know, the sound of monkeys coming in from the forest, sharing where you could go to any neighbor's house and you eat food, where the neighbor is free to discipline you with a cane if you misbehaved, where you could just go pick up mangoes, sugar cane. Uh, guavas, anything, go just, you know, explore in the forest. That was the first part of my growing up. And then the second part of it is when Idi Amin came to power. And all of a sudden it was sounds of guns, explosions, people disappearing, and the birds stopped singing. So that's another part of Uganda. And then obviously seeing bodies on the streets and losing family members, and th- that's the, the other part of Uganda that I grew up in, yeah.
0: Let's back up. Uh, How old were you when Idi Amin uh, staged a coup and took power?
1: I was around, when he came to power, I think I was somewhere around 12. Mm -hmm. And that was a scary time.
0: And what do you remember? You said that, obviously, he was known as the butcher of Uganda. Mm -hmm. Hundreds of thousands of people were killed under his regime. But as a child, what do you remember, besides not hearing nature anymore?
1: Mm, That's the first time I... I lost somebody that I knew. There was a young man that I used to stay with in my room and he didn't come back. You know, I I used to sneak him in. He used to go dancing and come back in. And uh, all of a sudden, they told us he's not coming back. And then the next day, they told us he's really not coming back. He died. And for me, that was so scary because I, I was looking forward to telling him stories, things that, you know, I'd seen that day and said, no, he died. He was shot in the face. That was the first death that I really experienced. Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: And you mentioned that uh, later on you had family members who died. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about the people you lost?
1: I lost my stepdad. Uh, He was a doctor, uh, Dr. Paul Wamala. Later on, you know, Idi Amin basically started the culture of killing. So later on, I lost my brother, Richard. But at that time, we had a different dictator, Milton Obote. He'd come back. And then if many others, but those were the two big ones, Richard Mulondo and my stepdad, Paul Amala.
0: When did you decide that it was time for you to, to flee?
1: That was uh, 1982. That's when I decided it was not safe for me to stay. And uh, my family also agreed it wasn't safe for me to stay because I used to really hang out with Richard and when Richard was kidnapped, then we didn't know who else they were coming for.
0: How did you make that decision? Because, again, this is the, the world you knew, the country of your birth, mm-hmm. and it's not easy to have to leave. But at the same time, you were fearful. Tell us about that, that, that breaking point for you. The you
1: breaking point <laughs> The breaking point is actually uh, an interesting one because uh, I, we, were, we were in a band at that time. A friend of mine and I had created a cover band and I was Rod Stewart, and my <laughs> my friend was playing, you know, Marvin Gaye, and we have we had a Bob Marley, and we were like really popular, like playing in a disco and, and, and big concerts, and like people knew who we were. And then one day I was having my shoes polished on the street, and I saw two policemen walking behind me, and and they came, and the way they looked at me, it looked like they were really going to kidnap me and I was actually planning maybe I should kill them instead of me being tortured like my brother. I was actually really planning on how I was gonna do it. And at that point, one of them just asked me, when am I gonna perform again? When are you guys performing again? We managed traffic last time you, you guys performed. The band was called the Mixed Talents. When are you performing again? For me, that was the breaking point. I was like, oh my goodness, I was just really planning to kill. I was just about to join in the culture of killing. And that's when I decided that's not for me. And I needed to leave.
0: Where did you decide to go?
1: I went to Kenya, which is right next door. And I had to leave everything behind because at that time, the way you had to escape, you had to pretend you're not really leaving, you're coming back, like you're going for a little bit. If they knew you're leaving for good, they would just take you in and nobody would see you again. So I went to Nairobi first and then ended up in a refugee camp there called Thika refugee camp.
0: What was that like to be in a refugee camp? I mean, today there's so much focus on uh, the refugee camps where Syrians have fled because of a civil war. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be in Kenya at this particular camp, at this particular time?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, It was uh, eye-opening for me in a good way. It's what created who I am right now. It showed me that we're all human beings, poor rich, educated, uneducated. Street beggars were there. And in the refugee camp, we were all just refugees trying to survive. Because there was always fear that somebody could be poisoned in the camp. So there was like watching out for your friends. You cooked for, uh, we divided ourselves in groups of seven. So, you, you know, we took turns to cook. And no one would take a bite until the cook took the first bite. That was just something that I had never experienced. But what I said was an eye opener for me was, it just made me realize that I could spend my life thinking about other people also, not just about myself. That's what changed my life. And the kind of lifestyle I was brought up in, we were like well-to-do people. So you had people doing things for you. And all of a sudden I realized those people that who were working for me, they were also, they're, they're kind people, they're people who have joy, they have sadness. They're not people you just say, hey, bring me this, bring me that. And, uh, so, and that only happened when I was in the refugee camp. In fact, when I go back to Uganda now to visit, I see some of my relatives who, they're still, they still think they're better than everybody else because they have more money, they have more education. They don't know if you strip that all away, We're just all human beings. I think the only person who knew that already in my life was my grandfather.
0: When you uh, fled Uganda, you Mm -hmm. said that you couldn't uh, make plans because you didn't want people to find out Mm -hmm. where you were going. Mm -hmm. So were you even able, you weren't able to say goodbye to any of your family?
1: I didn't say goodbye to a lot of family members. My dad knew I was leaving and so did my mother. The rest of the other people, you know, they just found out I had left. Because if the word leaked out then you could really get in trouble, yes.
0: How long did you foresee yourself living there?
1: This is weird, you know. I I only lived there for about four months. But um, when it got time for me to leave, I didn't want to leave. I was used to that life. Uh, It, like I'd built a little community there myself. There were some rebels there pretending to be refugees. And uh, I used to train them in taekwondo and they were actually part of the group of seven that I used to work with. And, and then many other people joined us. So just built a little bit of a reputation there and, uh, and a following. But there was also sadness. There was no music in that place. There was not a single day that they brought music. We only watched one TV show called Dallas. Um,
0: I remember Dallas.
1: You remember <laughs> Dallas? We didn't call it Dallas. We called it Jr So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Premise is who killed Jr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you again. This was a, a difficult time, right? You said that you were you after you got acclimated, you weren't sure, you didn't want to leave, mm-hmm. but you actually met your first wife
1: after I left. Yes.
0: So tell us how you left before you met your first wife.
1: So you do these interviews. They're done by the UN and also the Kenyan government, and. Um, you know, these guys are behind the desk, and they ask you, why did you leave? And you tell them the whole thing. And, um, and then they say, okay, you're free to go. They give you a, a passport, U.N. passport, and you become, you know, somebody who's, who's allowed to even travel, but especially work in Nairobi. And, and then you have to look for a job. They give you a little bit of money, but it's totally useless. So I found a job as a, you know, in a band called the African Heritage Band, and that's when I met uh, Joanne. I met her in, Nai- in Nairobi. Yeah. And uh, it was a time when I didn't, you know, I hadn't recorded anything and uh, she had my music and she encouraged me to record it and to practice my music and everything. And then she helped me sell my first uh, cassettes. It was very difficult for me to sell them because at that point the business people, they were Asians, Indians from Asia. And, um, They would not allow the African to come and sell cassettes or anything. They would tell you, go, 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 go away. And Joanne was an American woman. And so when they kicked me out of the stores, she brought the same basket back, and they bought everything. And from there on, she sold to all the Indians in in Nairobi. So she became kind of my manager, and then we fell in love.
0: So you faced discrimination uh, in, in Africa. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, definitely, which is, which is kind of very disappointing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. This is where we live. I'm speaking with Ugandan musician and storyteller Sami Tay, who's in Connecticut for the world premiere of his one-man play Resilience at the University of Saint Joseph. So you fell in love with Joanne, mm-hmm. and then what? Then we didn't really feel safe.
1: In Nairobi, there were so many, you know, foreign government spies there. So we made plans to move to the US. I ended up a little bit in New York City, and it I didn't feel so safe in New York the first four months. It was the first time I realized you can't really lean on a car that people think you're gonna break in. Because in Africa, we are, everybody's black. We're the majority everywhere. So all of a sudden, Leaning on somebody's car—you could be a thief. Somebody might think you're going to break in. So those were all new things for me to deal with. So, moved to Ethica, <laughs> Ethica, New York. So,
0: <laughs> that's a culture shock.
1: That was a little bit of a culture shock, especially first of all, it was very cold, and secondly, I had to pretend I was a vegetarian to make friends. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that was uh, another thing, you know and um, learn what you do before you go to visit these people. You eat, you know, a chunk of beef and then you go and, uh, and then you start talking about how much you love sprouts and tofu. And um, so that was the transitional thing and then later on, you know, I just became a native of Ithaca, yeah. yeah.
0: So you were able to come to the US, uh, your status was as a refugee, but your wife Joanne was American? She was
1: American, I came as a visiting refugee. So I was a visitor really, I was—I uh, well, didn't come as a refugee. And I just started applying, and we were not married at first. We got married in Ithaca.
0: And then your musical career took off. Tell us about that.
1: I was uh, one of those people that I say was in the right place at the right time. Early on, somebody came and heard my music in Ithaca, you know, saw me doing, I was doing solo performances, and this guy heard me, and um, this guy asked me, what are you gonna do here? I heard you in Africa. When you're performing, I, I heard you in Kenya. And he introduced me to a guy who owned a studio so that I could learn recording. I didn't have real money to pay for the recording. But the engineer said, if you play some of your music, my students could learn on you know, be, be the guinea pig. And when that was happening, he said, wow, we could record this stuff. And uh, I said, I can't afford to pay for it. And he said, no, the guy who introduced you to me is a millionaire he can pay for it. So we recorded an album, and this same guy who paid for it said, I have a friend in New York City, I'll send it to him. And that friend happened to be the general manager for Lady Smith Black Mombazo. And uh, the following week I was in New York City meeting Paul Simon, and, and then if, a month after that I was on tour with Lady Smith Black Mombazo.
0: This was a, a time when African music was becoming more popular in the US, well, thanks to Paul yeah. Simon.
1: Yeah, Paul Simon had made it really popular at that time. Like, we were well received almost everywhere we went, yes.
0: So from Paul Simon and Lady Smith Black Mambazo, you also performed for the Dalai Lama.
1: Yes. That was... Uh, How did
0: that come about?
1: He came to visit Ethica, and it was very interesting. Like, you know, I had never met him, and everybody was... People were very, very, very excited, and people were crying backstage. And I was asking them, why are you crying, you know? He's just another guy. And, um, and then after I finished performing for him, I had a choir behind me. And when I finished performing, he was bowing and thanking me. I started crying like everybody else. And I was like, I didn't know I cried for a few days. It felt somehow he had some amazingly positive energy that just overwhelmed me. And, and I felt good for a few days. So that's how that came about. And then later on, I was invited to perform in Canada at the Dalai Lama Center there. Mm.
0: So your musical career really took off. Did you ever think that that was the path that you would take uh, after coming here? Or was it, did you feel like you were just in the right place at the right time?
1: Mm. Well, Joanne had told me I'd get, you know, I'd be able to perform in New York. That's actually before I realized it was Ethica, New York. And so in my mind, I knew I'd play in New York, but I didn't know it was going to end up the way it went until I met another musician called Pete Seeger. And Pete told me, Samite, your music needs to be brought into places where people can't even afford to pay. And that changed the direction of where my music went. I fired my management, started bringing my music into some of the refugee camps and places like that.
0: This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. I'm speaking today with internationally known musician and humanitarian Samite Mulando. His one-man play, Resilience, will premiere tonight at the University of St. Joseph's Otterino Center in West Hartford. When we come back from the break, we'll find out more about how he used his talents to help others, and we'll hear more of Samite's music. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nolpathanchel. We're joined today by Samite Mulando. He's an internationally acclaimed musician and humanitarian, and the star of a biographical one-man play called Resilience, premiering tonight in Connecticut. Samite once lived in a refugee camp after fleeing Uganda. He would later move to the U.S. and settle in Ithaca, New York, where he would marry his first wife, Joanne. You Earlier we heard you play the flute. You also play other instruments. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about some of the ones that you brought here today with you. I brought
1: so many instruments. I brought a kalimba. So
0: that's like uh, the thumb piano? The thumb
1: piano, yes. But I also brought an instrument called litungu. It's a harp. Um, I, that's one of my favorite instruments. I was That one I was given when I was in Nairobi. When I left the refugee camp, I saw this old guy walking on the street and he was holding one of those. He became my friend and he brought me that particular instrument that I play now around the world. It's a, it's a harp with seven strings, they're fishing lines, the instrument is made out of goat skin. Yeah.
0: Can we hear you play the latungu? <laughs> That Samite here on Where We Live. I did want to ask you mm. if you could tell us about the song that you played on the harp.
1: The song I played on the harp um, is a song that I, um, I used to heal my, you know, when I was in Kenya, when I was, uh, after I left the refugee camp. And I met this old guy who gave me that instrument. I wrote that song called Waterfall. Mm. It's a song that was just for me, was to heal me. When I was missing Uganda, when I was missing the rivers, the lakes, the, the mountain, Uganda, mountains, Uganda is like full of hills, full of rivers, full of little forests. And it's just a beautiful country. So the only way I used to go back there when I was a refugee was through this song. Waterfall. It's still, to me, it's one of the most healing songs because it just, you know, it heals me.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, You were telling us before that song uh, that you wanted to bring your music uh, to people who may not have the resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, So tell us about that journey. Why you made that switch in your career?
1: Um, because, well, it's it's a long story. But I was one time I was doing a concert upstate New York, and this very tall guy came up to me, and he said, hey, Samite, my music, where you know, is something that our kids grew up to, you know, grew, up, grew up on. Would you, um, would you also be interested in, maybe we take that music back to Africa, and maybe, you, you know, go do some hum- humanitarian work with me back in Africa. So this guy just encouraged me to go back to Africa, but it was at the time when it was so scary to go back. There was ethnic cleansing going on, in Rwanda, massacres in Liberia. And it was at a time when it, I really didn't want to go back. But I just said yes to him right away because I felt like, a, he looked like he couldn't really put together a trip the way he was dressed. And I thought he was one of those people who just talk. And, um, but then he convinced PBS to air the documentary we were going to shoot there. So I found myself on a plane Going back to Africa and going to Liberia, and once we landed there, um, we headed towards an IDP camp, internally displaced persons camp, and there the children looked so lost and so sad. They had seen so much suffering that, and death, that they were they, they had become numb. Flies were flying in and around their eyes, and they just they didn't even you know care. And I found out that by playing the wooden flute, these kids started pulling on my shirts. saying, hey, I have a song. Can I sing for you, too? And it was just amazing. It was magical. And then the mothers would hear the children sing for the first time, and the mothers would come in and start taking over the whole show with their own music. Even the men would come and join in slowly. And this happened every camp we went. To, we went to, wherever we visited. And um, that's when I realized there's something about the healing power of music. There's something, there's a reason why I'm a musician. There's a reason why Pete Seeger was telling me I need to bring my music to people who can't afford to pay. And um, that changed my whole life.
0: You saw how therapeutic it was for uh, these uh, children yes. uh, and their parents to mm-hmm. hear your music in the refugee camps. What was the impact on you?
1: Well. Here's the thing, it wasn't even about my music. It, was, it just helped them to sing again. It wasn't even like, I'm going to continue performing for you. In fact, the women would, in all, some of these places, they just say, you sit down. We're going to sing for you. So they would sing for me, and then they would tell me their stories. And the thing is, their stories are so painful, some of them. I had to learn to strengthen myself. I had to learn to heal myself from the horrible stories they would share. But the thing that was, is, is, which is still, you know, something that drives me, which actually even drives the new CD that I do, is they would, after that, all that singing, they start talking about the future. Even the kids, even the former child soldiers, the kids who'd been meant to kill, after the music, they start talking about when things get better. When things get better, this is what I'm gonna do. When I make new friends, like little kids say, I'm gonna make new friends. What happened to your other friends? They died, but I'm gonna make new friends. So I've, I realized that music makes them stronger, brings, brings out the resilience, and you know, we, all, we are very strong. Human beings are very strong. A little bit of song could make you go back to realizing this is not, this is not the end. Things are gonna get better, yeah. I, yeah.
0: From Liberia, did you contemplate going back to Uganda?
1: Oh, we did go back to Uganda.
0: What was that like?
1: That was uh, <laughs> that was something else. Uh, my dad had never heard me play before. He used to hate me being a musician. He was embarrassed that I was playing flute. Um, the music doesn't come from that side of the family, My music comes from my mother's side of the family. My dad was, every, all my brothers, they're all accountants. All, everything has to do with the accounting, you know, and money. So uh, when I went back, it was uh, the anniversary for my brother Richard, who was killed. And, you know, it was amazing timing. And my dad asked me if I could speak in memory of my brother. And I said, actually, I would like to play something for him on the flute. So I played the flute, and my father cried. So that was, like, amazing for me. It was the most, it's amazing how much, I used to think I didn't care what he thought, but when he cried, and then from there on, he said, did you bring it? Whenever I went to visit after that, he would ask me to bring the flute, and I did each time to play for him.
0: Did you feel that your father was uh, finally proud of you?
1: He, uh, he, he, he said, I knew it, I knew, I knew this guy, <laughs> he, he, took, he took credit. But he had to ask me, so did these white people follow you all over wherever you went? I said, yes. They followed you even like every country you've been visiting? I said, yes. Then he started saying, I knew it, I knew you were talented. He took credit, actually, but yeah. that's a, that was okay for me, yeah. as long as he, he didn't feel embarrassed anymore.
0: Oh, you were talking, Samite, about uh, the reaction that these children and, and adults had when they heard you play. Mm. It, had, it, it gave them hope. They started talking about the future. When we think about refugee camps today, uh, it's easy to think about the bare necessities. Mm. These people need food and clothing, uh, a roof over their head, um, And but this idea of also needing something more. To give them mm-hmm. meaning back in their lives. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and here's the thing. Everybody, you know, the UN, um, church organizations, all provide them with food, shelter, and some education. But sometimes they forget to heal the soul. And music heals the soul. And actually, that's when I started an organization called Musicians for World Harmony to try to bring, to bring music to distressed people. And and this is what we do with this organization. We just help people seeing again.
0: Have you seen a change uh, from agencies like the UN where they they realize that this kind of programming can help these people who've been traumatized?
1: Yes, they actually do. Uh, I mean, like some of the places I go are so dangerous. Like I've gone to like Bukavu in Congo and UNICEF was doing this transportation and they would call to see if it was safe to go there. And they saw... These, you know, the people who are down on the ground see the difference. They can see they see the child soldier who's been so traumatized. He's so scared. And all of a sudden he's singing like we leave a musical instrument behind and he's playing, you know, holding a guitar. And and he's so proud because he's no longer embarrassed. He's now somebody who's bringing something joyful. Yeah, they definitely have to see this. And I've seen it myself you see immediate change in their eyes, in the way they walk. I do these programs where I call them Music Heals Program, where I record them singing their songs or telling their stories to music. And the change in the way they walk, when you play back the music in, in a boombox, they feel like they're kings again. It's just like a big, it's an amazing uh, way of uh,
0: studying the healing process. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. We're talking with musician and humanitarian Samite. His one-man play, Resilience, will premiere tonight at the University of St. Joseph's Otterino Center in West Hartford. After the break, Samite talks about his views on the rhetoric surrounding refugees in the U.S. And we'll learn more about his one-man play, Resilience. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. Samite is an acclaimed musician and humanitarian, and the star of a biographical one-man play called Resilience. Samite lived in a refugee camp in Kenya before moving to the U.S., where his professional career took off. How long have you lived in the U.S. now?
1: Since 1987. Mm. That's a long time.
0: In the last few years, the discourse around refugees at times can be xenophobic, uh, mm-hmm. where pe- we focus on differences and we worry about the safety of allowing people from certain countries to come and live in the U.S. What's your reaction as someone who has walked that same path?
1: I, it's very heartbreaking. Um, I do work with uh, Somali kids in Syracuse area, kids who've escaped some of the worst, you know, you know bad, bad situations. And the, the, their dream was to go to a place like when I came to this beautiful place where it's, you, you're, you're allowed to say, to pray wherever whenever you want to pray. You're allowed to do anything you want to do. And all of a sudden, these young girls are afraid to walk on the streets because people are judging them because of the way they are dressed. They are afraid that their religion is conceived to be a dangerous religion when they're like, no, this is not so. So. It's really heartbreaking, but I feel like the part I play is to bring music to them and let them tell their story through music. Um, And I've seen amazing changes in in their attitude in the way they become stronger.
0: Another subject that uh, causes division in our country today is race. Mm-hmm. You talked about moving uh, to the U.S., uh, to Ithaca as an African. Um, I'm just curious, uh, through the many years you've lived here now, you know, how do you uh, talk about uh, where you come from to people who may not know anything about Uganda or might, who might see you mm-hmm. and have uh, preconceived notions about you because of the color of your skin?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I have, I have the, the fact that I have the weapon of music, it, it, it is easier for me to talk about africa to talk about uganda the beautiful uganda before the dictators because music kind of breaks the ice when i'm on stage sometimes like you know 3 4000 people dancing they they don't care where i'm from they're just in the magic the music in that moment takes them to a place that opens it opens up it p- opens up all their you know whatever bad things they had in their heads throws those out and they realize we are all human beings enjoying and i think for me it's easier then to talk about uganda as a beautiful country um, i don't think everyone else you know other africans who are not doing music would find it as easy as i have to 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 break that ice and talk about the beautiful africa um, but i also because of uh, my traveling and going to many different places, like right now I live in a place, really very conservative place in upstate New York. I find that if I, you know, if I just open up and talk to people and not talk politics, I can talk to anybody. And, and, and it's amazing when they realize we have a lot in common. When they realize the stories I talk about when I talk about the TV shows I used to watch, I talk about Dallas. I talk about all these different things. I talk about the cars and it's amazing how some people don't even know their cars in Africa. I go to I do these school performances and kids ask me, "Did you live in trees before you came here?" And and the kids who ask those questions are usually my own, you know, they are usually black kids because they've made they've been made to think Africa is all bad. And they, their parents haven't read National Geographic books to them to, even if they read actually National Geographic, they will only see animals mostly, that would be most, sorry to say, but, but, <laughs> but still they have seen nothing positive about Africa. So they ask me, so did you leave in trees before you came here? I don't, I don't even get mad because they don't know. I take it as an opportunity to say, hey, what, guess what? Where I grew up, we had better houses than you guys have here. We have beautiful double-story houses and, and uh, beautiful TVs, beautiful cars, beautiful people travel. there. like, in
2: Africa? Yeah.
1: People, you know, they get surprised. And, but I, I also tell them, though, in the villages, people still live in mud houses with that grass, but they're happy people. So, so I, I, I try to give them the true picture. Yeah.
0: So, your music allows you also Mm. to be an educator?
1: I am an educator. I spend a lot of time in schools educating kids and showing them, you know, getting them to sing African songs, getting them to ask questions, yes
0: we're talking with you today samite because of the world premiere of your one man play resilience mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, going to be uh, on stage at the university of saint joseph this evening in west hartford let's talk about resilience so Please. we learned a little bit about your life mm-hmm. um, about some of the challenges uh, the journeys that you've taken um, how did you how do you tell your story in this play as a musician
1: i used to perform a little bit like say little stories in my performances meaning like I would say oh this song is about this and then I ended up doing a a TED talk and then a professor from the University of St. Joseph uh, a director actually of the theater department um, Steve Ginsberg came to one of the TED talks I was doing and he invited me to come to this area to help me turn my story into a one-man theater performance and that ended bringing me to be a better performer, a, story, a, a storyteller at, at a different level to where when I tell the story, actually relieve the moment of uh, that I'm telling the person about. Instead of just saying, oh, we got shot there. I actually take you through the, what we felt like, what we felt like when we were being shot at, what we felt like when that was happening. You know? So as a musician telling the story, the music just accompanies this story. It's it's really it's the spoken word that tells that goes on. So.
0: Is it difficult to recount some of these personal experiences? Because this is your story mm-hmm. that you're on stage telling a room full of strangers.
1: It's it was difficult at first, but now it's becoming because of the training I've had. I've I've been here for over like uh, twenty months. The training these, uh, that I've had from the from the college here, you know, University of Saint Joseph, has made it possible for me to relieve the moment. I do get in a sad place each time I tell it. Sometimes I actually cry in the training when we are rehearsing because I'm relieving the moment. Uh, but that makes it possible for the audience to actually also feel like they're right there.
0: Uh, I understand that you lost your first wife uh, Mm -hmm. Joanne to cancer that's part of this play as well?
1: It's part of the play and that was actually one of the toughest ones to to bring back because when you lose somebody and then you get married, remarried you've moved on kind of it doesn't mean you've forgotten the other person but in the play I bring her back to life I bring her back to life so that one was one of the toughest ones
0: What's the message of your play? Beyond, if we look at the title, Resilience, we can draw meaning from that. But what do you want people to think about uh, when they're sitting in front of you hearing your story?
1: I want them to realize that even when you're going through the toughest and the toughest, toughest situation, you have to realize that with time, things get better. You have to realize that you are stronger than what you think you are and that you are built to deal with a lot of with a lot of pain and and that it will you smile again, you will sing again. I think if we remember that that happiness will come back again, I think we'll be stronger people. I think we will we realize we'll be able to, to to be that happy person again.
0: We mentioned earlier, Samite, that your uh, 11th CD, Resilience, will be coming out uh, later uh, this summer. And in between our show breaks, we've been playing some music uh, from that CD. Uh, We are wondering if you could uh, perform for us one last time.
1: I totally can. uh, But the tune I'm going to play for you. It's going to be actually on a kalimba. It's not on the new CD. The song Resilience I played is on the new CD. This one is going to be something that I just came to play for you.
2: That's Samite, a a Uganda native
0: who is an internationally acclaimed musician and humanitarian. He's the star of a biographical one-man play, Resilience, the world premiere tonight at University of St. Joseph's Autorino Center in West Hartford. More information on our website, wmpr.org. Samite, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to share.
0: For videos of Samite performing in studio, check out our Facebook page at Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Steve Ginsburg, Gina Matruda, Lydia Brown, Carlos Mejia, and Ryan Karen King. You can also learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. As always, thanks for listening and have a great weekend.